Hey, Hannah. Hey, Dante. Hannah, for this episode, we talked to Sadie, who's another member of DBSA's Young Adult Council. She shared her story of activism, sobriety, and it was a great conversation. Yeah, it really, it was a real pleasure to hear the conversation um, with Sadie and hear more about the journey that she's had to this point. Like she just had a lot of passion in her story and so many little nuggets of wisdom. So I can't wait for our audience to hear it. Yeah, and this story and in our interview you can hear Sadie and I connect on being a rebel but also connect a little bit about the challenges of student government which if anyone of our audience out there has been in student government and and college you know how much of a beast it can be yeah I was not in student government but definitely connected with Sadie's rebel with with a cause attitude see what i did there um and i feel like it's yeah it's just a great conversation so excited for our audience to hear it me too but before we get into this episode remember to rate and review this podcast Uh, those ratings and reviews really help us get to the top of charts and it helps get our message out to people living with depression and bipolar but hannah what else can our audience do you know, they really should go over to dbsalliance.org slash I'm Living Proof and submit your letter. We say it a lot of episodes, but we could not do this show without our audience submitting their fantastic letters um, and working with us to record a podcast. So if that is something that sounds interesting to you, head over to dbsalliance.org slash I'm Living Proof to find out more. Anything else, Dante? Or should we dive in? I don't think so. I think it's time to listen to Sadie. Dear Sadie, for three years after your diagnosis, you will tell the people closest to you that this is not the life you expected to live. The first thing you will do when diagnosed and put on antipsychotics is read as much as you can about bipolar disorder. Most of this information will scare you. Divorce and employment rates, homelessness, incarceration, substance use, and mortality statistics will start back at you from the computer screen. Bad omens on top of the confusion you already feel having just come down from the blissful energy of mania into a world far more stark and cruel than you remembered. You are not prepared to deal with the responsibility and frustration of a serious illness and the prospect of a life far different and universally assumed worse than the one you imagined. You are not prepared to face the harm that your mental health has caused others or face the judgment and misunderstanding of your peers. You are not sure you can survive depression again. One thing you will do is read An Unquiet Mind by Kay Redfield Jameson. A physician with bipolar disorder, Redfield Jameson was open about her condition long before it was acceptable to do so, and has spent her career researching the disease, writing books, and advocating for people with bipolar disorder. Reading this book will be so moving that your roommates will find you sobbing into your morning coffee as you read it several mornings in a row. She articulates mania and depression in exactly the way you have felt it. And in her story, she uses these experiences to do impactful and meaningful work in her community. This was the lifeline you needed, and you cling to the hope that your life could be meaningful in a similar way. For a few years, you will dedicate yourself wholeheartedly to this goal, pursuing activism on campus, coursework on the housing and healthcare system, and internships in mental health policy. You will often find yourself excited and grateful to be doing meaningful and interesting work. However, you also hope on some level that you can trick yourself out of disappointment and fear if you focus on helping people who have it worse than you do, who do not have health insurance, housing, or familial support in the way that you do. You find that feeling angry on their behalf is a lot more useful than feeling afraid. 
Anger is a double-edged sword. It helps you feel powerful and confident in a time when control over your health and life seems stolen from you. It helps you do important work and find a career you love. But you also spend more and more of your time drunk in order to give yourself a break, and the anger sneaks up on you, seemingly endless. When you learn a great deal about the issues faced by your community, you resist becoming a part of it. You feel very much alone. If there's one thing I could tell you, it is that you do not have to do this alone. You will learn this over time. When your second depressive episode leads to a partial hospitalization for three months and a recurrence of binge eating disorder, this will be the first time you meet other people with binge eating disorder and talk openly about it with others. This behavior was such a source of shame and secrecy since it began in middle school, and hearing others talk about it will forever change how you feel about your younger self. You will feel alone when you experience psychosis for the first time. Though you have the support of many friends and family, you will think that no one else you know can understand what hallucinations are like how scary they are, and how afraid you are now to fall asleep, only to relive the experience in nightmares. Only a few months later, you will meet a friend at school who has schizophrenia, and you will laugh about these experiences in the book stacks of the library together. When you first have to be sober, you will worry that your youth is over. Six months later, you will step into your first recovery meeting, and there will be people like you, young queer women, ready to welcome you enthusiastically into their community a community full of radical honesty and riotous laughter, then you will feel truly stupid for ever thinking you were alone. You will volunteer for a mental health helpline and listen to people going through the hopelessness and confusion you have felt. If they ask you about your experience, you will share with them that sometimes recovery takes time. You will tell them that it took eight different mood stabilizers before finding the right one, that you liked some therapists more than others, that you took some leaves from school and ultimately graduated just fine, and that you made some bad choices before you made the right ones. You will tell them that it is okay to be afraid. Recovery takes a lot of courage. It is true that you did not expect to live the life you are living now. Your job and health policy and volunteer work are interesting and rewarding, and they are motivated by love for your community and hope for the future, rather than anger and fear. You are healthy and will likely remain so for a long time. You have so many friends who have gone through the same things that you have, and they are funny and loving and kind. You will find that this is, however unexpectedly, a truly wonderful life. Love, Sadie. Thank you so much, Sadie, for sharing that letter with us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Of course. We always start off with wondering what the experience was like for you writing this letter. Yeah. Um, I wrote a lot of versions of the letter, um, and I think, um, I've done a lot of writing that's just for myself, especially when I'm going through, um, difficult times in my life. Oh, I have a lot of Google Docs full of very poor writing that I wouldn't share with anyone. So it was definitely, um, interesting to figure out what it was I would want other people to hear um, out of all the thoughts I've had over the years about my diagnosis and what it's meant to me. So we hear that from uh, every once in a while from guests that they wrote different versions of this letter or that this uh, letter led them to write more in their life. Um, and so it's always interesting to hear like, oh, I put pen to paper and then I read it out, read it aloud. And, um, this is how it felt for me. One thing that struck me right away is the part of your letter. When you talk about those shocking statistics that you looked up, um, we talk a lot 
in the mental health world about doing research when you're first diagnosed, right? But we don't often talk about how scary some of that information can be that you discover. What was that, what was that experience like for you? It was interesting. I was um, started doing the research basically right after I was diagnosed, like day of. Um, and that was an interesting day because I was diagnosed at the height of a like a hypomanic manic episode. And so I was just starting to come down, um, taking the mood stabilizers I'd been prescribed. Um, and that in itself is a really, um, unique experience to go through, just like having your bubble be burst of all the, you know, joy and euphoria you're feeling and just coming back to regular life can feel like a huge disappointment. Um, and so it was kind of on top of those feelings already that I was doing this research. Um, and I think, um, because I was already a public policy major at the time in college, it was my second year of college. Um, very quickly, the statistics I were looking at weren't necessarily focused on what I was afraid of for myself. It's just trying to learn more about, um, the disorder in general and anything I could find about it, um, for outcomes. Um, and so I don't know how afraid I was for myself at the time. I think some of the things about relationships or the lifetime risks of suicide, um, did, did really throw me because it's hard to tell someone like, don't do that research, you know, like it exists and you want to know as much as you can. Um, and but I ultimately think, yeah. it didn't, it didn't deter you from learning more. It was, no, <laughs> I kind of seemed ahead and kept on learning. And I think because that had been so depressing to read it in a statistic, I had quickly started looking for memoirs, um, mm-hmm. of people who'd had bipolar disorder and what their life experience was. Um, and then that too, some of those books deal with really heavy topics. So, so it was definitely, um, not a wholly lighthearted, um, journey. Yeah. So, you know, you're very familiar that, uh, with DBSA and that we, um, very much highlight the peer experience. Um, how important was it for you to find those memoirs and hear real people talk about their experience with bipolar and, and the, um, real life consequences of, of living with bipolar? I think the memoirs were very powerful to me um, at the time. And they still are. I still love some of those books that I read during that time period. Um, But I think it was hard feeling like I didn't know anyone in my personal life um, who had bipolar disorder to just be reading memoirs about it. Um, And so... um, it was easy to see myself in the characters of the stories who obviously are real people, but I don't meet them. And something I wish I'd done earlier was um, look for support groups for young people um, so I could make friends earlier on. Um, because I think it was, yeah, it was easy for me to imagine my life like, oh, in 30 years when I have it figured out, I'll have a career like this person in that book. But I didn't have the like, here's how I just have fun as as a young person right now with this disorder, I guess. Yeah, it's so important to reach out to people who are going through the same experiences that you are um, 
going through. And, and that's why part of the reason I presume why you shared your letter with us today so that someone else could hear this and know that like you put in your letter, like that you told yourself that you're not, you don't have to go through this alone. There are other people out there. I Sadie, I get the sense from your letter that um, while you got diagnosed with bipolar um, when you were in college, right. That you kind of had some inclination uh, that something wasn't quite right a little before your diagnosis. Is that true? Yeah, I would, in some sense, I'd like struggled with anxiety and binge eating disorders since middle school. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd been in a lot of therapy, like <laughs> therapy wasn't new to me. Um, I feel like an expert at this point, um, having done it so long. Um, and my first depressive episode happened before, um, I was diagnosed as bipolar. Um, and so that was a very strange period in my life. Um, that was in my second year from school and I took a leave, um, basically cause, um, things seemed pretty normal over winter break, but I got back to school for winter quarter and suddenly just couldn't do things. And I just pretty much only like lay in my dorm room by myself and felt like had all these ruminations and couldn't get myself out of it and really could not function at all. Um, and so I was able to take a leave from school and I basically did nothing in my parents' house for a quarter and went to therapy once a week, but that was very strange. And I think I didn't, my family talked about it being depression and I was seeing a therapist, but to me it was so non-functional and so Mm -hmm. different from feelings of sadness that I just, um, I don't know. And then it lifted. And so my whole family was like, Oh, it's a blip. And so I think there was some element of receiving the diagnosis. Um, I mean, firstly, the mania really got out of hand and there was some like very delusional thinking that happened that I was not fully aware of. So it was like, no question that like, this is the right diagnosis and some relief in having things explained in a way that made sense. Um, but I think it also, um, yeah, I felt scary because I had very little confidence that I would, could control the episodes or the symptoms. And so that is kind of what took time is to figure, have the diagnosis feel like, okay, this can be a tool for managing it and not just, um, something I struggle with now. Um, if that makes sense. Yeah. How quickly after you get diagnosed with bipolar, do you decide that you're going to pursue activism, that you're going to help other people in the mental health space? I'd sort of decided, um, before I got diagnosed after my, um, first depressive episode, when I came back to school during that spring quarter, I spent, um, I had a class where you got to just choose one topic and do whatever you wanted. And so I chose um, serious mental illness and um, deinstitutionalization as a topic and spent the whole quarter researching that. Um, And I got really excited about it. Um, And so then at the end of the summer, um, I kind of had already 
done some research, actually, a lot of the statistics I was already aware of because I'd done research around um, those things. And so um, I was sort of ready to get the ground running. And then I decided to get involved in uh, activism on campus after my second depressive episode and I took another leave my third year. And that time it was difficult for me to get approved to return. I had to have a lot of paperwork signed by my uh, psychiatrist who didn't want to do it because she thought that was unethical. So that was really stressful. And then I, you can't, um, pre-register for classes. So I couldn't get some of the classes I needed. I had to like add drop into them. So I was frustrated by those experiences and, um, basically emailed every administrator I could and like (laughs) tried to meet with people and ended up meeting the Dean. And then in that process got connected to campus groups and they always need people who are excited. So they kind of shunted me immediately into being on the board of the disability justice club. And then that's what I did with a large portion of my time for the rest, you know, the next year and a half of college. So you had to do a lot of self-advocating to even get back into school. Yeah, I think it was explained to me that it was all just a formality and that I'd freaked out for no reason. Mm -hmm. Um, But also it was explained that way because I had to work my way up to the director of the hospitalization program I was in and have her call the administrator who was making things hard for me. And they had to have a conversation. And then um, I kind of got her in trouble a little bit. Yeah, it's interesting that you you would think like there is a process for taking a break from school but then the process to getting back in school if you have a mental health um, issue wasn't as streamlined it sounds like yeah um and I think like the students at the time at least in the activism space felt felt like that was intentional that the school was trying to basically edge out people who they didn't want to be responsible for Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, there were some hard stories about people who basically just weren't allowed back after taking so many leaves and, um, for all sorts of different health conditions. Um, in your letter, you write about feeling angry on their behalf, um, is a lot more powerful. I'm sorry, is a lot more useful than feeling afraid. Talking about folks who don't have access to care, but then you go on to write that anger is a double-edged sword. Um, you want to talk a, a little bit about your anger at the time and um, and your coping mechanism for that anger. What did you do to help try to like ease through, work through that anger? Sure. Yeah. Um, I was very angry for a lot of college. And I think in an earlier version of the letter, I wrote instead of useful, I wrote fun. Um, because I think for me, anger had this, um, where I felt like I was in control if I was mad about it. Um, I think, um, where like it felt really helpless to not know if I'd be able to go back to school and to not have options like part-time, it felt different to be angry about it and to be organizing and talking with other students and fighting with administrators. It felt like I um, was gaining control of the situation. And um, yeah, the double-edged sword, I think that in college, like I know I was able to be helpful to a lot of other students with disabilities and work with them. And I did end up changing one of the policies 
about pre-registration, like students on leave can do that now. And so it did some amount of good, but the downside of it was um, that, yeah, it, it, the anger sort of felt fun, or at least I felt it was, but it was also this energy that um, I did often spend, I don't think I was very self-aware that I was drinking in order to deal with the anger, um, but it was something that loved to coexist, um, to get <laughs> really drunk either by myself, um, which, you know, it was COVID, so it, that felt normal at the time, um, or with friends that it was super fun to rant and be um, drinking and feel like I, um, you know, was making a difference, you know, like shaking your fist at the sky in this sort of cathartic way. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And I think that, um, definitely I've noticed in sobriety that a lot of my anger, um, manifest differently because I would not say I had a lot of coping mechanisms. I was, when I was diagnosed, I hated everything about the discourse around self-care. Mm-hmm. Um, I was like, this is all stupid and unhelpful. <laughs> and um, I think there is sort of a curmudgeonly part of me that still feels that way. Um, but I definitely, um, you know, when I was no, had to stop drinking, realized immediately, like this anger is going to eat me alive. Like it was no longer manageable. Like almost day two, I was like, okay, like this cannot exist in in my body. Um, and so, yeah, other things helped. I think like meditation helped some, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's not for everyone, but I, um, really liked the Episcopalian minister on campus. So I spent a lot of time, um, talking to her and being a part of that community. Yeah. I think a lot of it subsided with time, but also kind of, I think just a clear headed, like this is not sustainable and understanding that for the first time where I thought before that the anger had been fueling all these good things in my life. Yeah. Yeah. I think we all can relate to like getting fired up about something (laughs) and then doing something about it. But once, like you said, the anger starts to take over, that's when it can become a little, uh, a little bit of an issue. I do have something that I wonder um, and if I'm out, you know, off base, just let me know. But do you think that on some level you may have been like your activism may have gotten in the way of your own mental health needs? Yeah. So it's funny you say that because um, everyone else in my life thought so. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and um, I didn't think so. Um, and yeah, I, I would get annoyed with people who, pointed that out. Um, I think, I mean, it's hard to tell. I think that activism was really a lifeline and like the anger and even to some extent the drinking, I think sometimes like you just need to have something to cling to. And I was so afraid and thrown by the diagnosis that it was, um, you know, it's hard to know exactly like what would have been a different solution for me at that time. It definitely, when I graduated, which was like off cycle in the fall, it did feel in many ways like a relief to not be sort of always working on something because I was in student government as well, working on those issues and I was the liaison and um, 
it had started. It was, yeah, a time commitment for sure. Um, but I mean, I just loved it so much, honestly. And I ended up doing, you know, just fine in school. Mm-hmm. And I think it is hard though, to be so personally engaged in activism and not feel anger. Um, right. and especially when it was my job to meet with like the Dean of students who would, you know, say to my face reasons that didn't make sense for being inaccessible. It's, it's very difficult to not then, you know, yeah. be pissed off. So <laughs> it's, it's hard. Yeah. I am trying really hard not to trade war stories with you about <laughs> yeah. uh, being in student government and dealing with upper administration. So like maybe that is a conversation we can have off mic, but I felt like I was in the same exact spot with you, like talking to vice presidents, talking to deans and how like their whole point was just to be inaccessible. Like that's, yeah. yeah, and the shamelessness. Yeah, I would love to have that conversation with you <laughs> for sure. Oh, um, as we move on here, you do talk about Uh, the recurrence of your binge eating disorder um, in your letter. Um, In our podcast, I don't think we've talked to anyone in depth about the connection between uh, eating disorder and a mood disorder. Uh, Do you think you can tell us a little bit about your experience and and about those, how uh, those things can go hand in hand? Sure. Um, So... Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't want to put myself forth as an authority on that topic, but I can just talk about what it was like for me. I um, think the binge eating disorder started, yeah, I remember it starting in middle school. Um, And I think it was always something that let me um, just like blow off steam from a lot of perfectionism that existed in the rest of my life. Um, and I think at the time it wasn't in the DSM yet or wasn't well known at all. Like you would learn about um, anorexia and bulimia, but binge eating disorder wasn't part of the discourse yet. Um, so it really freaked out my family um, and I didn't understand it as um, a disorder right away. So I just get like screamed at for like, you know, it was like, it was a little bit of a trauma, traumatic event uh, with my mother, but then I ended up getting in therapy for it. Um, And it's the kind of thing that when my life was going well, it would kind of fade away. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it was a crutch that would show up if maybe during finals week or, you know, the first month of college when I don't have a lot of friends yet and stuff. Um, But what happened was that during my two major depressive episodes in college, that became like the main crutch that I would use. And I also, and I didn't like drink during those two episodes either. It was the, the binge eating became the main thing um, just because it was so familiar to me as a thing. And I think that um, it, it was interesting. The second time, the second depressive episode, I was first in a depression treatment center uh, in a PHP program. And then um, the binge eating worsens to the point where they moved me to a binge eating specific um, partial hospitalization center, which was great. They had one where I was because very few exist in the country. So I was really fortunate um, to have the opportunity. And I think, um, yeah, I mean, that's a theme of my curmudgeonliness of like, they were going to have to prove to me that it was worth it to not use binge eating to cope because it was effective and the depression was so just completely 
yeah. I mean, people talk about depression. It's hopeless and I couldn't get out of my brain, all those things. Um, and so it, it was nice to be in a space where they sort of understood what was going on. So, and so, it, and it was talked about as a coping mechanism that like right. hoping that you can replace it with other things, um, but not to have to harshly judge it all the time, because of course that just makes it worse. Um, and it was, yeah, it was the first time, which I talked about in the letter of being around other people who also binge ate, which I just had never, people don't talk about it. If they do, I'm sure it's pretty common. Um, but yeah, that was very transformative to just be like, wow, we're, you know, like very average people who do this thing. And it's not so, so weird and strange that I had felt it had been for so long. Um, yeah. And talking to you, I am getting this through line of like this rebellious nature that you have. Um, in what ways do you think that helped with like your mental health, like getting the right help that you need? In what ways do you think that it, it hindered you? That's a good question. Um, I think it helps a lot as far as um, sort of a determination to succeed despite odds. So. Um, I felt very determined to graduate, very determined to do well. Um, and for that reason was very on top of some of the things I needed to do, even with my mental health to, to do those things. And especially in my last quarter after the episode of psychosis, I needed a lot of accommodations and I had to advocate for myself a lot. Um, and I kind of had to be like, I deserve to be here <laughs> over and over again. And so that the rebellious street helped with that. Um, one way it did not help was, um, I learned to this earlier, but I did not like the advice that I was, I don't like being given advice by therapists in general. I think I'm trying to get better at it, but, um, like one thing in particular that I was told when I got diagnosed as bipolar was that, um, that um, alcoholism often co-occurs or substance use disorders often co-occur with bipolar disorder. And so I should be really careful um, or even um, consider not um, using or drinking at all. Um, and yeah, I mean, I joke about it, but I basically heard like, okay, I'll quit when it's a problem. And then like, I'm going to make it a problem. You know, I think I heard like, there's a line and I was like, how far can I get there? Um, just because I was so upset, I think to be just told, but that my life would be so different right. than I expected. Um, and so, yeah, I mean that, that, that did backfire, but I also like, I am who I am because of <laughs> the experiences I've had. So, um, yeah. As a fellow rebel, I, I <laughs> trust me, I understand. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure there are plenty of people listening to this podcast who will, that will resonate with them of being like, I don't like to be told certain things or prove it to me. Right. I think yeah. you said that a few times and that really resonated with me. A lot of times I'm like, well, yeah, show me, don't just tell me, show me that this is an effective thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, you've gotten sober and you did so at a young age, uh, but said that you worried that your youth was over. Uh, what, what helped you get over that? And what would you recommend to other folks 
uh, especially young adults who may be considering sobriety or considering, you know, getting sober from their, their substance use? I think for me, what happened was that um, I was sober for six months um, without um, knowing any other sober people, at least any other young sober people. And I didn't go to any support groups or recovery groups. Um, and I mean, it, it worked, um, which was great. I was able to do it and I graduated in that time and, um, was looking for jobs. Um, but I was just really miserable a lot of the time, um, and felt, um, you know, I would still go out with my friends when they were drinking and I would feel all left out, you know? And, um, so then, um, basically I moved to, um, across the country, not knowing anyone in the Sioux city for a job and I didn't have any friends. And so I was like, well, I don't have an excuse. Like I don't have plans tonight. I'll try going to recovery meeting. Um, and my experience was very positive um, because um, in my city in particular, there's just a huge community of young people who are in recovery programs. And so I walked into the meeting and it's like, there's all these cool people here and they're like loud and they're laughing. And like, it was so exciting. I think it felt like just being in a crowd of young people um, who are all sober together, that was like so deeply healing for me. And now I have, um, like a large group of friends, uh, who are my age, who are sober and do really fun stuff, go to concerts and travel for the weekend and do all these things. And I think, um, I still have a lot of, fr I kept like all my friends who drink as well, but I, it's nice to have both communities. And, um, obviously, you know, recovery communities aren't for everyone. People, especially young people struggle with the emphasis on a higher power sometimes, mm -hmm. um, that kind of rhetoric. Um, and I think there's ways to make it work. I mean, they say all the time, your higher power can be anything, but more than that, like finding any community, whether it's in a 12 step program or just any support group. Um, I think I felt so determined, like I got to do this on my own. And that's kind of part of my curmudgeonliness is like, if I'm doing badly, it's like, I'm soldiering through and like by myself, no one, I don't need anyone's help. And it was really nice to be like, oh, I'm a human being and I need help, <laughs> you know, um, and, and friends and a community that's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Sadie, I really appreciate that you, no matter what part of your life you have been in, it seems like your younger self and your current self has always had the ability to recognize that you need to find community and then go out and find it. I'm wondering if someone uh, was listening to this podcast and they were trying to find a community, what advice would you give them? What are some concrete steps you could give them to, you know, go out there and find people? I think specific to mental health, um, I've enjoyed support groups that I've mm -hmm. gone to. Um, I've never been to a DBSA one, actually. I'm sure I've heard great things, um, but I've been to some from NAMI that I liked. Mm -hmm. um, I think for me, what has felt often best is to get involved by like volunteering, um, for that organization. So working on a helpline, um, is fantastic because you talk during your shift to people going through things and you can share your story and, 
um, hopefully be helpful, but then also all the people you're working with um, are also sort of members of this community um, and people are really excited to be friends. And I felt that's been um, a really fun way to make friends. Um, and then as far as sobriety, um, it's easy to Google, but there's such a variety of options for recovery groups. Um, you know, if AA is not your thing for whatever reason, there's a lot of other options to choose from. So, um, you know, it's always worth trying it. And if you don't like it, you don't have to go back, you know? Um, absolutely. And while you may not have gone to a DBSA support group, you're part of the DBSA young adult council. So, you know, (laughs) still joining a a community (laughs) of of peers uh, here at DBSA and helping us create content and sharing your story with us today, right? Mm -hmm. It has been wonderful talking to you. Before we wrap this up, I would love to know what is your favorite wellness tip or wellness practice? I have one, but I'm so mad (laughs) that this is now my tip Um, because I meditate every day and I love it. Um, But I also spent like easily 10, 15 years of my life being told to meditate it and like refusing to do it. Um, and I think that, um, I've just found it. I like, I really struggle with rumination. Um, and meditation is one of those times when I'm focused, um, just on how my body feels that I can like really rest my anxiety and, um, it's taken some practice, but it's been, um, so helpful. And I can do it during the work day too, when I'm stressed out, I just put my headphones in and I do a little meditation at my desk and no one knows. Um, and so, yeah, if you're struggling with it and you hate it, um, you know, there's so many different recordings out there. And some of them I think are just the cheesiest, stupidest thing I've ever heard. So you just, you just gotta like sort through to find the, like, you know, whatever, um, whatever person it is, does it for you. Um, and yeah, you know, keep on trying. I appreciate that. And I'm sure the members of our audience will appreciate that. I think if anything, your authenticity will (laughs) uh, be very appreciated. Um, thank you so much, Sadie, for sharing with us today. Thank you so much for having me. This has been lovely to talk to you. Of course. This episode was hosted by DBSA Programs Manager, Hannah Zeller, and Digital Communications Manager, Dante Freeman. You can support DBSA and more shows like this one by making a gift today. Head over to dbsalliance.org donate. Your support can help make sure that no one feels alone. Thank you.